Welcome to episode one of Indie Cornrows Podcast. My name is Tom Lewis, and I am very excited to get this podcast rolling. Make sure we're covering everything that has to do with the Indiana Pacers. And before we dive in, I want to pay a little homage to my friends at the fabulous Pelton Cast, my favorite Seattle-centric podcast. They usually pick out a athlete that uh, played in Seattle, either at UW or one of the pro teams, um, that wore the number that corresponded with the episode. So I thought I would pay homage and do that with the Pacers. You know, homage, stealing, whatever. Um, but for the Pacers, they had several players that wore number one, including Roger Brown and Freddie Lewis, um, who wore it for one season later um, in their careers. But of course, we know Roger Brown is number 35, hanging in the rafters. Freddie Lewis was uh, 14. So there were three players that um, wore number one for multiple seasons. Stephen Jackson, Captain Jack. Dante Jones, a uh, always entertaining, at least off the court, because the man could talk. And, of course, Lance Stevenson. So um, other guys I would, would think about was, uh, you know, old friend Jarrett Jack. Um, jump past Jared Jack. Uh, but he was only here for a short time. So if I was going on those three guys who wore the number the most, I'd have to go based on impact on the franchise. Of course, not all of it was good, but also the level of play. Um, by a mile, Stephen Jackson would get the nod. Um, but I always thought it was funny that, in, in hindsight, I have a feeling Dante Jones kept one of number one um, just because Lance probably wanted it while he was here, while, while they were both on the team. And the year after Dante left, Lance gobbled it up for the next several years. So anyways, that's episode one. I think maybe what I'll do uh, when I post a pod on uh, the website, I'll add a, a poll for the next episode, and I'll list the uh, players that were in consideration. So number two is coming up. Not a lot of Hall of Famers on that list, but some interesting names nonetheless. So I'll add that, and uh, I'll let the uh, readers at Indy Cornrows have a little say in who we should honor with the episode number. All right, so let's get on to episode one. Um, of course, we can't start anywhere, but with Caitlin Cooper, a uh, great writer at Indy Cornrows, covering everything, and publicly I have to give her high praise for all of her work this summer covering the um, off-season, not only her normal deep dives into the technical stuff and all the additions to the franchise, but just covering all the news. Um, I've, I've been on a crazy track with travel baseball and college visits with my oldest son, and um, I am one of the great first base coaches in all of baseball, any level. MLB, college, travel, Little League, whatever. But um, it hasn't given me a lot of time, and, and Caitlin's been there covering everything for me, so I really appreciate it. So without further ado, let's bring her on the pot. All right, joining us now is a woman that needs no introduction on the Indie Cornrows podcast, Caitlin Cooper. How are you doing, Caitlin? 
Hey, I'm doing good. Since this is your inaugural pod, I'm like kind of both honored and intimidated so that you can continue to have listeners after people listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. I'm a little intimidated too, but you know, it is August. So if we can get this thing working and worked out by the start of the season, I think we'll be in good shape. So, uh, but there has been plenty going on this off season and really this is when, uh, you know, our site and a lot of the hardcore fans and NBA fans um, dig into all the information. And first of all, I have to give you a huge thank you, um, all the effort you've put in this off season, especially over the past eight weeks or so when I've been in uh, travel baseball hell and, and all over the place and, and doing some college visits. I have often said, oh, I need to get something up on this topic. And before I even get to a computer, you got it up. Um, so that has been huge, not to mention all of your deep dive analysis on, on all the Pacers moves. So officially, thank you for all that work. It's been great. Of course. And I'm like the baseball stuff, all that traveling. Oh, dear. <laughs> I know from my nephew and some other people who are into travel baseball and travel sports, and that can be a real grind. So, Oh, yes, it is. It's fun for me. I love it. I help coach and everything, but um, yeah, there's there's definitely a grind, a grind portion of that. And um, so now that school started, I'm almost back to normal, so I can't wait. And also, you know, now that Pacers are headed into, you know, this is kind of a dead period, but now we have a schedule release, um, and Miles and and uh, Domas playing in the uh, FIBA at least. We assume they're going to play in the FIBA World Cup. Um, that's giving us something to uh, stay attached to the game here up up through uh, training camp. So um, I guess let, let's start um, with uh, the schedule that was just released yesterday. Um, you know, the Pacers seem to have a, a friendly start, and that's probably due to their preseason schedule uh, for the most part. But... Um, you know, I have them as favorites in the first 11 games. Why not? Let's go 11-0. and <laughs> um, We know that probably won't happen. But uh, um, after that, you know, it gets kind of levels out. It, it never is too bad. Um, and that early start of the season is critical thanks to uh, Victor Oladipo. We, we don't know when he's going to be back. You know, let's assume early January. Let's hope. Um, so maybe they can keep their head above water at the start of the season. Yeah, I mean, you look at it, I looked through the first October and November, and 15 of those opponents are against the East, which is interesting simply because, like, I think that they're going to have a lot of stuff to iron out early on, just from, like, the Turner-Sabonis pairing, from Brogdon running point without, you know, Giannis or Eric Bledsoe on the floor anymore, and given that is going to be out. You know, Nate coaching a team that's more geared towards offense, Victor just being out, and then all of the overseas travel. Like, I mean, Miles and Sabonis are each going to have three overseas flights in less than a month's time between being in China, coming back, going to India, coming back. So it's interesting because I looked up earlier today. I wanted to see what teams that were doing that the prior two years that have been in the NBA global games, how they fared when they came back at the start of the season. And it's a little bit different this year because the season got pushed back to the 
22nd. The Pacers are opening on the 23rd, but it's still a condensed preseason schedule. And I looked, and last year the Sixers and the Mavericks played in China, and they both started out at two and three over their first five. And then the Warriors and the um, the Timberwolves played the prior year, and the Warriors kind of got off to that clunky start where they were like four and three. And then the Timberwolves were also two and three over their first five. So you kind of can see a little bit of a slow start from all of those teams because they don't have a lot of time on the back end when they get back. And even, those trips are also jam packed with like promotional stuff and charitable work they do, which is all good things, but it also can be pretty tiring to go along with the jet lag. And I remember the Warriors kind of talking about that and with everything, all the new faces the Pacers have to incorporate with Miles and Sabonis already having fatigue from preseason. I do want, or from world cup stuff, I I do wonder if that will have any effect in the early going, but certainly I think they probably have to be happy that it's a little bit softer at the beginning, but given that it's at the East, are you going to be potentially dropping winnable games against people in your own conference? Like it's a give or take. Yeah, that that's the key point is, yeah, it's a soft schedule, but are they going to be ready to roll through it? And obviously, you know, they're not going to go 11 and 0, <laughs> but, yeah. but um, you, you want to win as many of those games as you can. And it looks like we were talking about the preseason schedule. There hasn't been anything officially announced. But, you know, you have the two games in India on uh, October 4th and 5th. And then right now we know uh, two home games, October 11th against the Bulls and October 15th against the Timberwolves. That's probably it. That's probably the preseason schedule because then it would start on the 23rd. So, um Hopefully they'll be able to get the rest in there. And right, that adjust. that that back week's going to be important because, like, even if you look at the earlier schedule ahead of the preseason, the final phase of the World Cup is from September 10th through the 15th. And then I looked, and a lot of teams that play in the global games open training camp early. So I would kind of think that the Pacers will probably be looking at like September 21st because those teams tend to start on the third weekend in September. So, like, there's just not going to be a lot of time to really set, you know, your groundwork with Turner and Sabonis early. But, yeah, you're right. Like, they're going to have a little bit of a week-long cushion there where they're going to need to make some of that up in terms of just building chemistry with all of their new players. Yeah, and you would think, okay, well, we'll give, you know, Domas and Miles a little break during camp, which, I mean, they tried to do that with Bogdanovich last year, and he, he, he wasn't having any of it. But, but really, like you mentioned, they're trying to get – this new team together and that that's going to be tough let alone Domas and Miles they they can't have enough time on the court together so um yeah that's going to be that's going to be a grind so um hopefully they can uh withstand all that travel and unfortunately those two guys are young <laughs> yeah so and and really hopefully they'll just remain healthy throughout the whole thing um for starters so um Moving along, along with that schedule, um, I was kind of surprised looking at the over/under wins um, by the Superbook, Westgate in Las Vegas, which is kind of my um, my preferred book in Vegas. Uh, they opened the Pacers at forty-six and a half, and when I saw that, I was like, "Whoa, that, that's an under right there." I mean, Victor's hurt, so many new guys. Um, how in the world are they going to get, you know, to the same spot they were last year? I, I think they can make the playoffs, obviously, but I just feel like there's 
kind of a um, a spot where you know they're going to have struggle at times. Um, and then you know after a couple of weeks, that number moved up another game. So people were betting on the Pacers to go over. And I'm starting to think, you know, is that a, a Nate McMillan thing that for some reason, somehow, I mean, he, he's been able to get these guys to play well in the regular season, play harder on a lot of nights than yeah. other teams. Um, and a lot of times that that's the difference. You know, the Pacers play harder and they won the regular season game. And maybe people are thinking that he'll be able to get these guys together and just win those games when, when both teams aren't really – <laughs> in the mood to play, but one team's got to play harder and win, and that's going to be the Pacers. Otherwise, I don't know. I know, having read your stuff and, and heard you um, elsewhere, you know, talking about this team kind of having potential for a higher ceiling, but also a lower floor, you know, kind of, how do you feel about that number at, at 48? And also, you know, what? why do you feel that lower floor, higher ceiling with this squad? Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would lean towards the under. I've seen a lot of people kind of, well, not a lot. I've seen some people penciling in then and like the top four in the East. And I'm just not, I'm not saying that it can't happen. I'm just not ready to go there until I just think there's so many unknowns between like some of the things I mentioned, Turner and Sabonis and, you know, Brogdon stepping in as a point guard while Victor's out. But like, as far as the higher ceiling, lower floor, when I first wrote that about TJ Warren, I was kind of, I mean, he was one of the first pieces that got implemented. So I was kind of comparing him to like Thad. And what you said is true. Like so many nights last year, they, Thad kind of set an effort standard. And Nate McMillan, by extension, as a coach, sets that effort standard. And you could just count on a lot of times that, yeah, they were going to play harder than the other team and that they were going to have the defensive identity that they had. And I'm not saying that's going to go away, but I don't know with all the new play pieces if you can count on that night in and night out but if tj warren's shot holds and a lot of the other pieces they have they have more spacing on the perimeter at least or at least the option to if they want to play tj warren at four sometimes if you're looking at a direct comparison to him and thad that you have a little bit higher ceiling in ways that you didn't see last year in the playoffs where you know the celtics were really two nining off of Thad. they were really crowding into the center and there were times where sabonis is seeing two goalies when he's trying to roll down the lane or when <laughs> miles is getting cross matched and and that's no knock against that. He has tons of strengths, but that's just one thing of, you know, was this team that was here the last two years that, you know, I mean, two seasons ago, that was probably one of the most fun Pacer seasons that I can remember in recent memory. But had they just capped out what they could actually be? I mean, I know there could right. be some arguments that, you know, if Victor had played in that Celtic series, and I'm like, you know, maybe, but they were struggling against teams that were switching even before he got hurt, they were struggling to crack the century mark earlier in the year against Houston and Philly, and they weren't even running great switching defenses at that point in the season. And I hadn't seen a lot about how they would deal with traps with Victor. So just, you know, I understand that they were ready to, you know, trade in a little bit of defense for offense, and maybe they're trusting in their overall defensive system between Nate and Dan Burke that, hey, maybe we'll see some growth from TJ Warren in the same way that we did from Boyan Bogdanovich. I mean, he wasn't regarded as a strong or even passable defender in Washington or Brooklyn. So that that's kind of where I'm judging it at until we actually see it in action. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you're right on point with that because it, it, it seemed like, well, especially with Thad last year, it was just anytime he made a three, it was like found money in your pocket. And that kind of got frustrating because teams obviously just played to that. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I can remember one specific instance, you say that, I can remember one specific instance earlier in the year against Houston where they were kind of having, once they got a switch, they were having Clint Capella follow out behind the three-point line and then forcing Victor to drive into rotation. And I remember being really shocked because they were actually pulling the man off the strong side corner off of Thad, which is like a huge no-no, but they were doing it consistently the entire game where he was seeing three defenders. And, you know, there's just... That's a hard thing to overcome when more and more the NBA is shifting towards offense. Yeah, absolutely. And and like you say, that that team got they got about as much out of those guys as they could. I mean, for, you know, I mean, Collison. I mean, he retired. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, Bogey played well. You know, maybe he was a little fatigued at the end of the year, but I mean, I don't know. That guy's just a machine. And I think you know, it just got to a point where. When you're playing a good team that knows, you know, that can game plan and focus on guys um, directly, you know, in a series, that, you know, maybe that's how you can slow him down because you know what to do. And um, so, love bogey and everything, but like you say, I mean, I think we kind of got the most you could get out of him as well. So, you know, now they're bringing in guys, and it's a completely different dynamic. You know, when they brought most of those guys in two years ago and, and a couple, three years ago, it was all about flexibility. Right. But, you know, because, you know, they, they didn't know exactly what they had with Oladipo and Sabonis. And and they got these veteran guys who they knew who could play, and then they'd be available at the trade deadline um, to help rebuild or, or build around Oladipo, possibly. But then they played so well. You know, no one wanted to get rid of him, and then you know they brought it back, and let's 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 ride again, and you're in the same situation where you know they could at the deadline do the same thing, but then you know Victor gets hurt and that messes everything up. So you know it's kind of hard to say. Um, Kevin Pritchard had this grand plan and, and got to where he is now. I mean, things have just been happening, and the the best thing he did was have a roster that was extremely flexible. Um, so now he gets to a point where um, this summer, you know, we see all these changes and they went hard after Brogdon and kind of are treating him as a, you know, their, their premier guy, uh, bringing him in and locking him up. And so now we got guys who are going to be here for a little bit, a little younger, can score, do a little different things. But, um, that's that's where the ceiling gets a lot higher for these guys, and they still didn't have to move Domas um, or Miles or whoever you want to choose <laughs> um, <laughs> to really make a a big change in the roster. So they still have that one that one move left, I guess, if things go haywire with with uh, Miles and Domas. So um, it's a completely different dynamics. So it'll be interesting to see how the team comes together and, and plays together because those those teams the last two years have been fantastic as far as chemistry, working together, and just focusing, like we said earlier, on each game, trying to win each game um, in the regular season. And you make a good point there about just the changing dynamic because, I mean, even Thad and Bogdanovich, were, they're both 30. This team's a lot younger. 
Yeah. And maybe that plays into the fact, I mean, it was all a big butterfly effect to an extent because, you know, Miritich, yeah. Miritich decides that he's going to go back to Europe, which then that was Utah's primary target. Then they throw a bunch of money at Bogdanovich. You know, maybe the Pacers still would have been able to retain Bogdanovich if Miritich doesn't go. I don't know. Maybe he gets another offer from another team. But, I mean, they're younger, but it seems like a lot of the guys they signed for the most part have a very team-first attitude, at least starting out. Like, I mean, I saw exit interviews from Jeremy Lamb in Charlotte where he was very much like, whether I'm starting, whether I'm coming off the bench, whatever's best for the team. And it, it seems really genuine on his part. I mean, he did that last year where there were times where he came off the bench or he started and he seemed amenable to both roles. And TJ Warren just kind of seems like a gym rat type guy that just, you know, I think he's going to be happy to be free of a place where it's, they're not playing for, he's not going to be playing for ping pong balls, (laughs) an opportunity to win. And, and Brogdon just, you know, he's called the president for a reason. So, I, I mean, I don't know that they'll necessarily have a big difference in chemistry other than the fact that they don't really have a lot of, the older veterans outside of like Justin holiday or, I mean, not that TJ McConnell's been in the league for a long time, but he also seems like a guy who's willing to stay in his lane, so to speak. But it kind of brings up an interesting point that they are younger, but like you said, they had more flexibility before and now they have guys on multi-year contracts. And I don't, I don't by any means think that any of them are bad or like prohibitive contracts, but if stuff doesn't break, right, you really want those to be able to stay tradable because this is somewhat of an experimental year. And you yeah. don't really know going into next year, it is going to be Victor's contract year. And you don't want to put too far into the future here. But, you know, seeing some of the stuff that happened this summer, I don't think that Oladipo necessarily <laughs> seems like a guy who would force a trade or say, you know, I'm done here. But it is you are going to be presenting him with a picture at the end of next year of, hey, this is where we're at while you're going into the final year of your contract here. And it doesn't look, I mean, it kind of looks like this is going to be the team minus what you said. If they do at some point think, hey, we don't know how much further we can get with Miles and Sabonis together. If they flip Sabonis, then that gives you a little bit different look. But for the most part, this is kind of their team now. Right. And and I agree. I mean, they, they do have a, a good group of guys, it appears. Um, but when you talk about Oladipo, nothing will surprise us, right? at this point. So um, you got to assume that they're going to be doing everything to lock him up. And unfortunately for Vic, I mean, with his injury history, um, you know, the market may not be as huge um, as, as it would have been, but you know, if he comes back and shows he can play, um, I love Paul George and it's not a problem, but I, I have no doubt the Pacers will, will max him out. Um, unless, you know, he yeah. just can't play again. So they will have that advantage. But like you say, he's got to see those parts around him. As Paul as Paul said, you know, he, he didn't have any help, which, <laughs> you know, one thing that helped the chemistry of that team that was expected to win, what for, I think their over-under was 31.5. And as you said, it was one of the most fun seasons ever. But, you know, Paul, Paul leaves saying he needed help, didn't have any help in Indy. And, and uh Thad Young and, and Miles Turner were sitting there going, oh, hey, Paul, I'm over here. <laughs> and uh, they they never said it, but their body language uh, did. And, you know, that that was a little driving force with that squad, which was which was nice, and it was good to see them uh, um, have some success that year. Um, but speaking of contracts, now that you brought that up, um, Domas Sabonis, extension. Um, 
what are your thoughts on that, getting that done before the start of the season? I actually think it's pretty important that they do it because, I mean, I obviously was a proponent. I wanted them to start looking at Turner and Sabonis last year just because I knew, you know, Turner was going to be extension eligible and Sabonis was quick to follow. And I think they needed to know what they had in that lineup. I mean, I don't really, even going back to last year, I would have liked to, especially after Victor went down, I would have liked them to test that out at least against certain matchups. I mean, they played the Pistons three more times after the trade deadline. And you'd kind of like to be able to say, Hey, on these certain nights, if we really have faith in this pairing, like they're posturing now, Hey, we're going to run miles and Sabonis together on these certain matchups so we can at least see them against starters kind of rearrange those minutes a little bit because so far they closed, I think two games together last year against one against the thunder and one against the bulls. And that worked out. So somewhat because of what matchups are out there with them and that OKC for whatever reason, didn't choose to cross match that. And they had Steven Adams out pulled beyond the rim for, I don't know what reason, but regardless, I would have liked to see them experiment with that because now you know, they're going into it somewhat blind here into the start of the season and they're hoping that it works out. But if they don't get an extension with Sabonis, they're going to lose somewhat leverage with him in February with other teams because other teams are going to see, well, he's going to be a restricted free agent. And if you had come to the table earlier, you know, we could have either you could have locked him up and you would have traded him to us. Or if you would have moved to this last year, then we could have negotiated with him ourselves. So I, I think I saw a quote last week from Sabonis coming out of Lithuania that he was expecting to get an extension. And I know Kevin Pritchard has said it's a priority and I think that's going to be a good thing. I mean, absolutely. From, from Sabonis's side, it's kind of interesting because, you know, maybe he looked at Victor last year and thought, Hey, you know, if I'd kind of just want the security up front, injuries can happen and I'm happy here. So I want to get this extension done. But on the other hand, I would, I kind of would like to think that his agent would be telling him, Hey, this free agent pool next summer is pretty shallow. So if you hold out, there's a good chance you're going to get more money than what you're going to get starting here. I mean, I did look up before we started, just to run it past you, what some of the average annual value values for some of the centers that signed last year, which granted these aren't rookie extensions other than you could look at miles, which I don't think they're going to give him as much money as they gave miles, but like Al Horford was at 27. Nikola Vucevic is at 25 million annually. Valanciunas is at 15. Brooke Lopez is at 13 and Dwayne Dedman's at 13. So, I mean, I think at a minimum, you're probably going to peg Sabonis there at 15. I mean, what do you oh, think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I wouldn't be surprised if he was, you know, a dollar short of miles, honestly. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think somewhere in that range is going to be, what was miles? 18? Yeah. 18 flat. Yeah. Right, four. That's right. Flat across the board. So, yeah. So, He'll, yeah, I think between 15 and 18 would be was what I was expecting them to be. And, and I think you're right. You got to do it because it makes it a little uh, easier on the trade market. Um, and, it, and it makes it less pressing that they have to do something in February. If they haven't oh, locked yeah. up years, then at least you can see this pairing with Victor. If you don't do it now how much of a window are you actually going to even see them with Victor? I mean, maybe you don't need to. I looked at the schedule and there's, it's kind of funny how loaded it is with the double big opponents before the trade deadline. They're playing Detroit (laughs) all four times. They're playing Philadelphia three times and the Lakers all before February even gets here. So, I mean, that, those will be good tests. I mean, if you can't, I mean, 
even going back to the playoffs, I mean, that was Al Horford and Aaron Baines. That shouldn't have been a bad matchup, and no. yet yeah. it was. So, and that and that kind of goes back to the uh, Pritchard thing with you know the grand vision or just maximum flexibility because all of a sudden the league has changed. Um, you know, for one, the super teams are kind of dying. Um, guys are pairing up, but also in the East, at least, you know, you're getting the more double big lineups that are going to be out there, which all of a sudden the Pacers are just, everything fell into place for them. And now, now they're not so out of place. So there wasn't any pressure to, to try and move Domas this summer. They can give it a look. And if they can lock him up and it works against these other double big teams and, then they're set, but you know if if it doesn't, then you know now you can deal them. So, um, yeah, he's uh, Pritchard ends up being a little bit like Gumby here <laughs> with the way things have worked. But but we're running into you know time's going to run out. I guess at the at the trade deadline, and then um, after that, you know, then we got so many guys locked up, and then that's your guys. So and then we'll rely on Vic. But speaking of lineups, I guess I could. Pivot here, trying to I'm trying to look because there's so many guys on the roster, and you bring in guys like McConnell and Holiday, and you know they're they're kind of bringing that veteran presence, perfect guys to have that are coming off the bench and could have a limited role. But when I look at you know playing rotation, you know what nine guys is is generally what we're going to be looking at. And with Victor, if if you're thinking about Victor in there, but once he comes back, you know, you can pretty quickly get to seven before you have, um, you know, I say Oladipo, Brogdon, Miles, TJ Warren, um, Sabonis, and uh, Jeremy Lamb. And then, oh, I was put Aaron Holiday in there as well. And again, We'll see how that rolls out. His summer wasn't the best, uh, but I imagine they're going to at least start to have him in the rotation. So, um, and yeah, normally I guess McMillan's always talked about, oh, I want an eight-man rotation at at media day, and then he'll have a ten-man rotation for a month or so. But um, but if you include Holiday, then you got seven. Then then Aaron Holiday. And then, uh, so that leaves Justin Holiday, T.J. McConnell, Edmund Sumner. We, we want to see what he does. Um, and T.J. Leaf. What are you going to do with T.J. Leaf? So, and Alizé Johnson. Who wouldn't want to see Alizé Johnson in there for a little bit? Because he's such a different type of player. And I guess it may go to matchups, but what, what do you see that player rotation falling out? I mean, it, it's kind of going to be interesting to see what they do with TJ Leaf's final year of his rookie deal here in October when that's due. I mean, I, I could see TJ having a similar role that he did last year, really, when you think about it, because, I mean, it sounds like they think Goga's ready to go. I've watched probably, I don't know, three games of his. I mean, it's <laughs> kind of hard to track those down, and I've liked what I've seen. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, I expect- mentioned him earlier, but yeah, he, he's obviously a factor. 
Yeah, I mean, you look at Turner and Sabonis and Goga, if they're serious about Goga being the backup center, then I would think, I mean, he kind of plays a three and a half big rotation with TJ being the half last year. So I could see them doing that again. And maybe, you know, TJ Warren can float to four with bench lineups if they want to with Sabonis. Um, Jeremy Lamb's the person I would expect that will slide to the bench when Victor comes mm-hmm. back just because, you know, he. I think the area that he grew the most last year with Charlotte was his ability to attack switches offensively, which is an area that the Pacers are lacking. I think they'd want a person like that on the floor. I kind of expect that they'll stagger early in the season, Jeremy and TJ, quite a bit just because both of them can go get you a bucket in that regard, and they don't have a ton of those types of people especially with Victor being out where you can like toss the ball to him at the end of the shot clock and actually get a shot. That isn't really Brogdon's game necessarily, at least creating a shot off the dribble, like a jump shot. But I mean, it is going to be tough. I expect there'll probably be camp battles between Sumner and Justin holiday early for that backup to spot, at least in the early going of the season until Victor gets back. And then, then after that once one thing I'm kind of intrigued by is, is Doug McDermott. Like Justin Holiday brings a little bit more defensively than Doug McDermott does. So when Victor gets back in January, what are you doing there? Because Doug McDermott's owed seven point three million. Is that money gonna sit on the bench so that Justin Holiday can play at the three? Or, you know, as is Doug gonna move up to two and they play him to I mean, you can't really do that because Jeremy's gonna shift back to two. So that'll be an interesting battle even mid season. And then, you know, what you said, too, about Aaron and, and TJ, I expect that that will be a little bit more of a battle than I thought that it would necessarily be. I mean, I still think Aaron Holiday needs to get minutes, but, yeah, that summer league didn't go particularly well. So, I mean, he, he needs to work on his decision-making. And I did write a little blurb about this earlier in the summer where I'm kind of interested by the dynamic that him and Justin being on the floor together will have because Justin – shoots like 10% better from the corners than he does above the break. That's really where, you know, he leaves a stamp and that's an area where Aaron kind of has a blind spot to finding those shooters. When he gets the ball, he's, he's very shoot first, but will he be more cognizant of that when it's his brother on the floor? Like, I think that could have a positive effect for both of them. So kind of be interested to see like if that impacts Edmund's ability to crack into the rotation, if he'll still see minutes at Fort Wayne or how that's going to play out. I mean, I expect that Alizé is probably going to be with the Mad Ants for most of the year, but I'm glad they're at least giving him another look to try to earn a spot going into next year by the fact that they, he already has his foot in the door this year. And I think Justin Holliday won't have a problem telling little brother, dude, I was open in the corner. You got to get it to me. That's my yeah. spot. So, um, you know, I, first of all, I went to UW. I'm a huge Justin Holiday stan, I guess. So, um, and he he was a guy that came at uh, UW. His oldest brother. Um, they had him. They were on him early. They you know they got him, and everybody assumed the reason they were really recruiting him was because they wanted to get Drew Holiday, um, and that was part of the uh, recruiting pitch. Um, but obviously, Drew went to UCLA, but Justin was unbelievable. He's just a dog. He's he's always plays hard, and the fact that he made it into the NBA, I thought, was awesome and you know kind of not surprising. Although he didn't really have the NBA skill set, but now in the DN three uh, era that we're in, you know he's found he's found his way and he's stuck. And um, I I can't wait to see him 
play because I know he's going to just bring, you know, good energy and, and be a guy that needs to be in the mix somehow um, with this team. But, again, like you said, that would be at the cost of Doug McDermott. So hopefully Doug will uh, figure things out. I mean, he, he was pretty good on the road last year shooting the ball. And uh, ho- hopefully he'll get over into the uh, out of the St. Vincent Center, into the field house and uh, get some shots up before the season. So um, he can get that, you know, be that Kyle Corver type guy. Yeah, he definitely brings good off-ball movement. He's definitely a great yeah. cutter, knows where he needs to be. That those those splits between home and away were very strange last year, and then you know the, then the playoffs happened, and it wasn't really a. Gr- I mean, I don't. There's going to be a lot of teams that aren't going to be a great matchup necessarily in a playoff situation because he's not going to be able to do anything against a switch particularly, and then at the other yeah. end, that Boston kind of targeted him quite a bit until the point where Nate pulled him from the rotation, but. Yeah, that, that that's that's something I'm going to keep my eye on midway through the season next year. Yeah, I, and I you know I felt like he he was definitely obviously you could see where he could be a useful part of the rotation and uh, you know be an impact player if he could you know get the you know if he took five shots a game, not down two, um, you know in those minutes off the bench, that'd be great. If, if he gets five shots a game. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that was the thing. It was like so much of it was dependent upon. I mean, really when that kind of turned, when he started getting some volume was just because Sabonis was finding him. Like his mm-hmm. connection with Sabonis was there, but outside of that, Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like he had more dunks than, than threes. So, um, but I guess that's how he's going to be used. So it'll be good to have options, but uh, for some of those guys, you know, like, I'm talking about, you know, maybe they don't get, uh, you know, it depends on how long a leash they get to be in the rotation and, and make that impact before they move on. So, um, but, you know, TJ McConnell, he's a guy that I guess you know what you're going to get. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a ceiling to that, but it's also consistency. And that's something that, you know, you can coach around at least. Um, so hopefully Aaron Holiday will develop some of that consistency. I, I mean, it kills me because when he makes a three, Aaron Holiday, it looks like he's never going to miss another three. I mean, it's so easy. Yeah. It's so easy and smooth. Um, but then you know he, he he lets them fly, and then when they're not falling, then it's you know quick that's trip. that's sort of the thing with him. Like you can see that the tools are there. Like, he can shoot off the dribble, he can shoot off the catch, and, and the consistency's there. But even with the passing, like, it's not that he doesn't have skills as a passer. There was passes that he made last year that Darren and Corey can't make or don't make. Mm-hmm. And yet, then he goes into summer league, and I don't know how much of that was a product of the rest of the roster that was around him and not having a lot of shooting on that team and the fact that I don't really understand why they didn't add another pick-and-roll big if they had any doubts that Goga wasn't going to be there. But (laughs) you'd like to have seen that he would have been making more passes regardless of result, and maybe he was thinking, well, if I do that, I'm not going to be getting assists or points, and people are going to think I underperformed. So, But like the 5 of 25 box scores really weren't doing it whenever you can think of what you just said that, you know, there's going to be TJ behind him being like, well, I offer a steady hand. Not that he's going to be like, I don't want to put it that way. I don't. He's not a guy that's going to be complaining about playing time, I don't think. But that's what he's going to be offering that Nate McMillan's going to be seeing is that's somebody that I, you know, 
know what he's going to bring night in and night out. And we, I don't think the Pacers really need Aaron Holiday to be going, you know, racking up a million shots in that <laughs> amount of time next year. No, I think he'll have a little shorter leash with him. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. Um, all right. The only one other, I guess, I hit the hit on a negative spot here, but um, especially with Broadbent and Warren, um, injury issues with those guys are what scare me um, when I'm talking about an over-under of 48 wins. Um, Broadbent obviously has had the foot issues, and he's been in and out a little bit in his career, had some issues in college. Um, and then Warren, I mean, the Pacers basically were given – Warren, which was nice of the Suns. Um, so, you know, the the risk on that deal was, was minimal. Um, but I, I, I looked at an uh, article um, that was written late in the year last year um, on the AZ Central, the Arizona newspaper out there. And, um, and the Suns coach was... Uh, Igor Koskov, what is it, Koskov, Igor, my man Igor, <laughs> he uh, he mentioned that it was a chronic ankle injury, and the word chronic, you know, kind of bums me out. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of weirdness around that. Like, I mean, he had that ankle bruise. I think he actually initially hurt his ankle against the Pacers pretty early, like I want to say like December. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it was, but then he tried to come back and play some. And then as the season went on, I mean, he's like five three-point attempts shy of a $250,000 bonus, and he never Mm -hmm. gets back on the floor over that massive chunk of games. And I talked to – I did a QA and a with one of the, the head manager over there at bright side of the suns and they kind of said that they never really knew what was going on there that the suns wanted him to be back and he wasn't really even back at practice but then i kind of wondered you know was that because they were anticipating that they were going to trade him and they didn't want to risk him getting hurt again like because it seems like if you could play that you would have been like doing anything you could just to stand out there and chuck up five more shots but (laughs) i mean i don't know like that that is a little a little strange but well i i um the article I saw, I think he was at a point where he had missed the last 22 games and was hopefully getting close to getting back, um, which didn't really happen. Um, and so, you know, it, it wasn't uh, anything that I read that was like after the fact, like, oh, yeah, they dealt him because right. he had this crime thing. It was, it was in the middle of it, which um, gave me a little bit of alarm. So I guess... You know, when we're looking at this team and, you know, in absolute terms, the, the raw talent that they have and, and the ability, and, you know, the, the pieces seem to fit pretty well and seem like they'll be pretty good. And they got guys that can, um, a couple more guys that can make shots. Um, everything looks good. But, you know, aside from Vic, we also have these other guys who have an injury history that we have to be a little bit leery of. So, you know, it's not all perfect as we head into the, um, you know, preseason here. Um, One other thing I want to hit on um, is obviously a little little more emphasis. I know you've hit on this a lot. You're the expert on this topic, the Turner Sabonis 
pairing. We've kind of hit on it. Um, like, how did we get here? Well, we kind of got here because, you know, the way the league has fallen and, and with the, the bigs in the East, there's no reason to move Sabonis now. Um, it, they're going to get a shot to work at it. And I, I've kind of thought, you know, I know everyone's frustrated that they weren't using him more earlier. And that was, to me, kind of an indication that maybe they were going to move one of them or that was kind of the plan, quote-unquote plan. Um, and now here they are where they're going to have to, or they're going to be able to play them both and give them an actual look against other double big lineups and see if they can play together. Um, but what else do you see? I mean, what are, even considering you're playing a, a, a normal double big team on the other side, um, you know, what do they got to do to make this work? Right. I, I think I said this on another pod like a week or two ago. Like I, I will emphasize this. Oladipo taught me a very valuable lesson about internal development. Like if he comes, if, if when Oladipo comes to the Pacers, if he's the guy that he was in that Houston series where there was two games where he like didn't get to the line and he wasn't efficient at all. If he's that player, we're talking about the Pacers in a completely different light today than, than what we are. So if, Sabonis and Miles both have really good summers and Sabonis can come back and he's stepping out comfortably and can hit some threes at a respectable clip and Miles's workouts with Kevin McHale there's there's returns from that and he can attack a switch against a small then then we talk about this a little bit differently but even if those specific things don't happen which that would make it I think a lot easier for Nate McMillan if there was just that those individual improvements. But even if those things don't happen, just looking at what went on last year, Miles in particular, like if if they are being cross-matched or if they aren't, like if it's just a double big lineup, as you say, instead of just stashing him in the dunker spot, I like to see that they're willing to let him go out to the corner. He attempted less than 23-point attempts from the corners last year. And if they're going to be using Sabonis a lot, which I think that they probably should be given what some of Brogdon's limitations are to create his own jump shot. I think he's ideally really good as an off ball initiator. Use Sabonis as more of a hub where he's either connecting with DHOs or you're using him in pick and roll some where he can connect both sides of the floors in that way floor in that way then you really want miles to be able to step out to three where that spacing is going to be there because the difference between brogdon and darren is brogdon is way more of a driver whereas darren was a lot more east west with miles mm -hmm. so you kind of want to get some of that spacing i'd also like to see that they're setting you know higher screens rather than last year sometimes you'd see them with darren where they'd both be at the elbows and that wasn't really helping darren who already struggles to get downhill momentum get downhill momentum and that would also open the floor up a little bit and then just running like roll replace stuff i was watching which team was it? I was watching one of the teams in the basketball tournament a couple weeks ago, and I want to say that um, – oh, I don't remember who it was. But they, their coach was basically like, all we're doing is role replace. That's all we're doing. And I was watching it. I'm like, this is all I want for Miles and Sabonis is just to be running more role replace stuff where if they are going to have Miles in the dunker spot, when Sabonis goes to roll, just let Miles come back up to three. That would put so much stress on the tagger, and it would let both of them do what they're already good at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in Nate McMillan's defense, like last year, he went into the season, and he kind of tapped the brakes on that early and was like, well, they're both centers, and this isn't really a good line 
sign up for us and they played less than two minutes in preseason. So I don't think he was really ever planning for them to be playing large chunks of minutes together. But now, like he's known for a couple months, hey, this is what we're going to do. And I think we might see them running a little bit different stuff that's tailored to the two of their specific needs and how they can play off of each other because he has more time to actually be fleshing that out than he did a year ago. So that's just a few things. And then just miles in general, like I'd like to see him grow and where he needs to, to stand a little bit more. That seems really rudimentary, but (laughs) there's times where, you know, Sabonis is rolling and he like flashes middle or Sabonis is posting and he drags his man to the opposite block. And, you know, he's still really young. So there's time for him to, to grow in some of those specific areas, but that really cramped their spacing at times. And that's not a Nate McMillan problem. I mean, some of those were when the plays break down and it goes back to what Kevin Pritchard said at the end of season presser, good players figure it out. Like when the plays break down, they just need to figure out how to play together and maybe with more time in a summer to actually prepare for what they're doing that happens. But if it all stays exactly how it was last year and we see more of what was going on in the playoffs last year, I would be bearish about it actually working out in the long term. But there's just a lot we don't know right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, both these guys are young and still developing. And while we're concerned about you know, this international play that they're involved in, maybe it'll be, you know, something that pushes one or both of them to another level. Um, getting that extra time, playing against other players, playing against their peers, and uh, being put on the spot in a different situation, uh, you know, maybe that'll be something that helps spur in that development. With Yeah, them. that's pretty, that's an interesting one because like Valanciunas and Miles are like, not remotely similar players, but at the same time, like it's going to put Sabonis in the position that he has to be guarding fours. Like that's what Mm -hmm. Lithuania, the few clips that I've seen, that's what he's been having to do. And then with like miles, I mean, he had a pretty ancillary role on Friday, but the one thing that he is like, I think he's going to be the starter for team USA. That's what it looks like right now. So he's going to be getting reps this summer against Jokic. If they play Serbia, you know, Gasol, if they play Spain, Valanciunas and Sabonis, if they were to meet up with Lithuania, Gobert's going to be there. Like Baines out of Australia, he'd get another rematch with that. Like that's a lot of imposing big men that he's going to get an opportunity to be at least guarding against, even if he's not super involved offensively, which it looks like they're going to be playing a little bit more through Donovan Mitchell and Kemba rather than they're basically just using Miles as a screener most of the time in the brief minutes that he got. He didn't get to play a lot because they were playing all the centers, but... Yeah, I mean, in that regard, it should be good for both of them, just the the experience that they're going to get against other top tier talent. Yeah, exactly. And I know, and watch a YouTube video of a first scrimmage they had, and Miles, at least in the first part of it, he was rebounding like crazy. I was like, oh, this is great. Then watching the scrimmage on right the game the other day, it was the you know same old. eh, Didn't quite get that ball or even get close to. That ball that maybe you could have. There's a little bit of Bagley and and Jaron Jackson targeting him in the post a little bit too. I mean, there was even yeah, one play yeah. where it's fronting Marvin Bagley. I was like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, so work to do, work to do, but we'll uh, we'll uh, keep hoping for the best on that. All right, well, we I think we made it through episode one, Caitlin. I really appreciate you uh, giving me all the time and all the knowledge, and there's much more that we have to dive into here. Hopefully I can get you back on um, as we get through the off season and get this season started. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. And and listeners, this is Tom's podcast. So if you didn't like listening to me, then <laughs> there'll me. be more opportunities. There'll be other guests, I'm <laughs> sure, at some point. <laughs> no, absolutely. It'll be me. They'll be clamoring for you and saying, get somebody else in there. No, uh, but I appreciate the time. And obviously, we will be in touch. And Pacers fans, you can read all of Caitlin's good work on IndyCornos.com. There's much more to come. Enjoy. Thank you again, Caitlin. Yep.